This is a production of the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, the JGI. And now a JGI IOTA, a snippet about JGI-supported science. I'm Allison Joy, your host for this IOTA. Bacteria are among the simplest and most ancient life forms, so they're highly adaptable. They play essential roles in nutrient cycling, producing oxygen, and breaking down organic matter. And the ways they do that offer valuable insights into how we might engineer new products for clean energy. Today, we're talking about bacteria that make their home in hot springs, where temperatures and pH levels vary wildly. And so you get these really weird situations that, you know, you just don't find elsewhere on the modern Earth. That's Brian Headland, a microbiologist and professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's been studying hot springs for over two decades because of their extreme living conditions. Because of these weird conditions and weird chemistries, you get biology that does weird stuff. You know, they're using weird chemicals that you're not going to find out in the ocean or, you know, or in soils. Recently, he and Marie Palmer, a former postdoctoral researcher in Brian's lab, honed in on a group of bacteria thriving in these hot springs called chloroflexota. These bacteria have a lot of different tools in their various toolkits. Some chloroflexota are able to break down toxic chemicals like those found in refrigerants or pesticides, and others can break down organic matter. They can respire both with and without oxygen. The list really goes on. Here's Marie. So these microbes that can actually respire these compounds gives us a way to actually get rid of some of those toxic compounds. But at the same time, we have some that are really cool in terms of being able to at least break down some of the compounds that provide us with a means of making biofuels. So all in all, they're actually really diverse in terms of what they're able to do. And part of that is because, remember, they're super ancient. They're basically part of this group of bacteria that they call the terabacteria, um, which is thought to be those first bacteria that kind of colonized the land on early Earth. So it's kind of that movement from an aquatic environment to more of a terrestrial environment. That's billions of years worth of family history to trace, and we're still figuring out how different chloroflexota evolved to understand how they developed their weird tricks. And lately, while Brian and Marie were looking at samples from Great Boiling Spring in Nevada, something caught their eye. They managed to isolate an interesting organism. Surprisingly, when they began to study the evolution of the new organism, they found that it was related to a group of chloroflexota called Dalecocoidea. And while Dalecocoidea had been found in terrestrial environments like hot springs, these land-based Dalecocoidea were sort of outliers because the vast majority of them are found in the ocean. And the Dalecocoidea are, are really abundant and widespread in the oceans, but not there are no cultures. And, and so there's a big, big mystery about these Dalecocoidea in the ocean. So there has been this constant debate on whether the marine Dialacacoidea actually came from terrestrial ancestors or not. So, in other words, did the Dialacacoidea move from the ocean to land, then back to ocean? Or did they start in the ocean and just stay there? Marie and Brian realized they were studying one of the chloroflexota that could help settle the debate. It was terrestrial and clearly an ancestor of the marine Dialacacoidea. And like getting more representation at those deeper terrestrial branches in the evolutionary history of the, of the lineage 
kind of gave us more tools to be able to show that, yeah, no, it actually looks like it's from a terrestrial origin. And they actually migrated back to the ocean. So the organism was indeed the ancestor of ocean-dwelling Dale Cocoidea. And as they looked closer at it, they found something really surprising. It had flagella, those little propeller-like tails that organisms use to swim around. Up until now, the only motility that was confirmed in this phylum, in the Chloroflexota, is gliding motility. And that doesn't use flagella. So every single one of the cultivated Chloroflexota that we had until now, none of them ever exhibited motility. So none of them ever had flagella. And that includes marine Chloroflexota. So for everyone keeping track at home, these new hot spring Chloroflexota have flagella and can swim which bizarrely their marine descendants don't have. I asked Marie why that would be. So it could be a case of the ancestor to those lineages just didn't have a need for flagellar motility any longer. And obviously maintaining a massive structure, a complicated energy intensive structure like a flagellum would negatively affect you if you don't need it in the environment that you find yourself in. So that's kind of our best hypothesis for why they ended up losing the flagella as well. Yeah, it turns out flagella are less useful in the ocean than you might think. Many of the marine dialococoida are actually quite small in cell size. And the smaller the cells become, the, the less efficient their flagella swimming is because the, the Brownian motion would actually kind of overpower their actual swimming ability. So they'll just be wasting energy trying to swim at a futile chase around their own tail, basically. So it seems like when they moved back into the ocean, these chloroflexota downsized a bit, losing parts of their genome, including the flagella coating parts. But as a package, you know, that this idea that you, you're losing a bunch of DNA and you're streamlining and simplifying, and that allows you to explode out into the oceans, there's some interesting experimental evolution or, or you know, physiology, uh, even studies of microbial fitness under different conditions that I think could help us to better understand the, the underpinnings behind this, this evolutionary pattern that we're seeing. Besides finding that flagella and helping settle the Dale-Cocoidea debate, Brian and Marik also found evidence that these land-dwelling chloroflexota may have the ability to manipulate plant growth by synthesizing and degrading plant hormones. And so it could be that the root of the evolution of, of this stuff is interactions with plants, and they might even, in soils, be manipulating plant growth and plant stress. Like, hey, plant, don't be too stressed, yeah. but please grow so I can eat your stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, but then th then they lost most of it, but not all of it, when they went back to the ocean. And that is actually pretty fascinating. See, understanding why bacteria need certain tools on land versus the ocean and exactly what they do with them sheds light on how we might engineer tools of our own that harness the power of nature. So that was Professor Brian Hedlund and his postdoctoral researcher, Marie Palmer. The findings from their study were published in ISME Journal. We'll link to their paper in our episode description. Brian is a professor at UNLV, and Marik is now an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba. The JGI enabled that work via our community science program, which you can learn more about at jointgeno.me proposals. You can also read more about Brian and Marik's findings on our website. There are links in the show notes and an accompanying story, as well as a transcript of this episode online. 
This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Allison Joy. I had production help from Manika Wilhelm, Massey Ballin, and Graham Rutherford. If you like this episode, help someone else find it. Tell them about it, send a link over, or leave us a review wherever you're listening to the show. Genome Insider is a production of the Joint Genome Institute, a user facility of the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Science located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in Berkeley, California. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.